Hello, welcome to TGen Talks. I'm Mark Moran. Hearing the words, you have cancer, comes as a shock. Hearing that your child has cancer is almost unimaginable. And when you learn that it is a rare form of brainstem cancer known as diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG, that affects less than 300 children per year, the questions become endless. Brain tumors are now the most common cancer and cause of cancer-related death in children less than 15 years of age today, with DIPG accounting for nearly 80% of all brainstem cancer cases. DIPG is a central nervous system cancer that forms from glial, the supportive tissue of the brain and spinal cord. The average survival time following diagnosis is about a year. Joining us today on TGen Talks is Dr. Michael Behrens, professor and director of TGen's Cancer and Cell Biology Division and head of the Glioma Research Laboratory, who leads TGen's DIPG research efforts. Those are focused on conducting genomic profiling of tumors to increase the understanding of DIPG at the genomic level and developing techniques to monitor how tumors are responding to treatment. Dr. Behrens, welcome. Thanks for being here. Mark, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Genomic research has helped advance diagnosis and treatment of a number of diseases. Do you hold the same hope for DIPG, and if so, why? Well, I do hold very high hope for the utility of genomic analysis of DIPG. And the reason behind that hope is that the more we interrogate and understand the miswiring of the blueprint that causes the cancer, the more likely we're going to be able to design better treatments or to stratify patients in ways that we can put to work the best treatment for individual patients today while new treatments are being developed. So my enthusiasm and my hope are both very high. How does DIPG form? What effect does the tumor have on the patient? The cause of DIPG is poorly understood. There's a general sense that something goes wrong in the cells differentiating into the fully mature cell type they're designed to become, and they get arrested. It's a differentiation arrest. They're immature, and they keep growing when the other normal cells mature and stop dividing. So we're not, we're not exactly sure how that um, loss of differentiation takes place, but it we haven't been able to link it to a specific environmental exposure. It doesn't at all appear that DIPG is an inherited form of cancer, so the kids don't get it from their parents because of the parents' genetics. It seems to be a sporadic, uh, terrible, but fortunately un infrequent type of cancer. Uh, quite a mystery. It's an area of intense study. I've been excited in the last decade to see so many more labs now build up research programs studying this rare form and currently poorly treated disease. With it being so rare, we mentioned less than 300 cases per year, how do you recognize it? How does the patient present? And how do you know how to test for that? The tumor DIPG forms in an anatomical structure in the brain called the pons. So when you say diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. The pontine label means it forms in this structure in the pons. The brainstem is where 
all the communication from the brain up above passes through to control all the functions in the body that are regulated by the nervous system. So the symptoms or the manifestations of a child developing DIPG show up as changes in nervous system function. So loss of coordination, speech problems, balance issues, uh, visual problems will show up that way. So these are the kind of symptoms that show up when a child presents then the caregiving team will recommend, let's take a look at what's happening in the brain. They'll use modern medical imaging technology, MRIs, to look at the brain. And the difference in the tissue of a DIPG is markedly distinct from normal brain. And the anatomical obstruction becomes really clear that Unfortunately, then the doctor says, we think we know what's going on here. Your child has a tumor in their pons. That's typically how these present. So while rare, fairly easy to spot when you do spot one, when you do find one. Correct. The tumor roars out and the child suffers physical manifestations in a change in neurological behavior. And then medical imaging is fairly accurate to say we we have a, a beast to deal with. How have you utilized genomics to understand DIPG and develop some potential treatments for it? So genomics lets us look at how the genetic information, which is in every cell in our body, it lets us look at how that information is unpacked and being used for a cell to do things. So certain genes are unpacked and used in heart cells, which makes those cells shrink about once a second. That's why our resting heart rate is around 60 beats per minute as adults, because the genetic wiring leads to some very specific behavior of those cells. When we look at the genomics of a DIPG cell, we can see that uh, there are not a lot of genetic mistakes or mutations that show up, but one very common mutation shows up in the gene, the instructions of which allow a cell to make a protein that the DNA wraps around when the DNA is parked and protected from being used. So it's a fascinating story about kind of a mechanical gene that it's just a, it's like a box the DNA gets wrapped around to protect the DNA so it doesn't get damaged in the course of just normal events. But that DNA gets unpacked so the genes that are on that strand of DNA can be used for the cell to behave. When there's mutations in these proteins, they're called histones. There's one very specific histone and one very specific site on this histone that shows up invariably in DIPG. So it's amazing how precise the molecular pathology can be, which is a bit staggering because one simple mutation on a packaging protein leads to this constellation of bad behavior in these mm. cells that becomes malignant and life-threatening uh, to these kids. So our understanding of the disease has soared. We've also seen that while this K27M mutation in DIPG tumors is common, common, common in this rare tumor type, we also see that the accompanying other mutations is extremely variable. So on the one hand, we think, oh, there's a trigger, a single trigger that leads to the disease. 
But then all these other changes in tumor suppressor genes that hold back tumor growth or oncogenes that tend to, when they're mutated, push cells to become cancer cells, we get these other constellation of changes that are exquisitely variable patient to patient. Dr. Behrens, how does TGEN's research into DIPG differ from other studies, and are there certain vulnerabilities in that specificity, which you just described, that you're able to attack in trying to cure this? What's distinct about any specific cancer research project is that we end up, whether we're studying adult brain tumors or tumors in the pancreas or colon or breast cancer, lung cancer, when we focus in on a tumor in a specific anatomical location, there are what the community refers to as smoking guns, that we see these highly likely culprits, and we try to go after those with specific therapies. In the case of DIPG, this histone mutation is a very unusual mutation, and it makes a very curious therapeutic target. So like, well, if that's the problem, why don't we turn off the behavior of that gene? The, the real challenge there is we need histone proteins in our cells to package the DNA, protect it, and then unpack it when genes need to be turned on. So you can't really turn off the gene. So can we fix the mutation? There's a big effort to say, well, if you can fix the mutation, would that cause the cells to stop behaving as if they were malignant? The answer is probably not successful because there have been whatever that histone mutation has caused among those are these other mutations in other genes. But it's still worth a hard try to say, can we reverse that? Um, and we're excited to put energy into understanding how can we try to turn back that one misbehaving gene and see how profound an influence it could have on regaining some control in the cells. You're listening to TGen Talks. I'm Mark Moran. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Behrens, professor and director of TGEN's Cancer and Cell Biology Division and head of the Glioma Research Laboratory, who leads TGEN's DIPG research efforts. Dr. Behrens, your work is supported by a number of families who've lost children to DIPG. Does that add an extra sense of, man, I, I really need to get this right to your work? Well, there's something about a child that's afflicted with cancer that pulls on your heart as well as your mind, really on your soul, that this sense of victimhood, uh, the young innocence, it seems like such a violation. Uh, all the hopes and dreams that a family has that are inescapable with a new life come crashing, uh, especially with the dire prognosis that often accompanies DIPG. So we, we do want to move with a sense of urgency, and at the same time, we have to be careful. We, we don't want to move ahead uh, prematurely and potentially create harm instead of help. There is that tension that plays in that space. The other arresting component is we've mentioned how different the tumors are from child to child to child, even though they may all share this histone mutation the other manifestations of the disease uh, make us move slow, like, well, would this work in this child? And so being able to work in a precise, customized uh, manner on a patient-by-patient -patient basis is a big challenge. Uh, but we definitely feel the pressure for this. Um, 
working closely with families, and TGen actually reaches out to the families twice a year. We host a DIPG scientific update. We held one this past week. Um, we had families connect with us and wanting to hear what are the efforts that are moving forward. Many of these families, TGen had sequenced the tumor from their child who had passed away. And we do privately uh, meet with those families and we get to share with them, here's what we learned about this disease because of your courageous gift to provide us tumor tissue to help understand the disease process. And I've been stunned over the last five years how with each tumor we get to look at, we learned something about the disease that we frankly didn't know. Um, recently, we met with a family whose child passed away from DIPG. We had three different samples of the tumor, and it was as if it was three different tumors. And we found a gene that was very active in one of the tumor samples and not the other two. That, had, that gene had not been described in association with a cancer previously. So we we learned about a new gene that can misbehave and contribute to cancer. Those kinds of discoveries have very real possibilities of opening up new opportunities potentially for treatment. And we just get so excited and grateful for the courage of these families to say we want to be part of it. Those families who've lost a child, they've chosen not to run away in grief, but they've decided to stay in the fight. And they encourage us. They connect with us twice a year. Some of them raise funds to help advance our research efforts. These are incredible heroes who we love being held accountable for where are we going, what are we doing, who are the people that are involved. Uh, so I counted an enormous privilege to work with these families uh, that are frankly the backbone and the wherewithal of us being able to do our DIPG research. And maybe in some small way they feel a connection still with the child they lost through you. Well, maybe it's more us with them. Um, <laughs> I have to say that uh, we typically don't have tears at my lab meetings, but when we review some of the DIPG tumors in our lab meetings, it's been interesting since we've been meeting with these families. Those now become not just scientifically uh, driven, but we do become more emotional because of the family connections. That's why I, I phrase it, you know, it's our connection with them and with their children. We know names because they're very vocal about this. Uh, it makes it not just a piece of tissue that we're studying, we see that, in fact, it's a life. It's a lost life. It's a life that had potential that was stolen. We do push <laughs> really hard in that space. Where's the research headed, and what do you think it'll take to get there? What I'm most excited about is our liquid biopsy program, where as therapies are developed, it's helpful for the oncologist to know, is what I'm doing today beneficial for the patient in my clinic? And so having a liquid biopsy that gives a real-time assessment of what's happening in the tumor tells the oncologist, stay the course, it looks like the tumor is staying under control, or it looks like the tumor is escaping therapy, we need to look at something else. When I get feedback from the actual doctors caring for the patients, they are so eager for that kind of feedback. And medical imaging is helpful, but in the context of brain tumors, there are so many other events that happen, tumor swelling, inflammation that may be going on, that it's difficult by medical imaging to be very confident that I can see what's happening to the tumor. No, they can see what's happening to the brain, but interpreting it as to, are we actually hurting the tumor or are we causing inflammation? It, it, it's a very 
difficult challenge. And so having a liquid biopsy that is a readout, almost a digital readout on how much tumor is the patient dealing with today compared to two weeks ago. Wow, that kind of feedback excites me to no end. The other thing that I'll say that we're doing at TGen is we're touching on a technology that many labs around the country and around the world are working on, and that is how do you get a drug to a brain tumor? Uh, the brain is wrapped and perfused with blood, but the blood vessels have a distinct anatomical structure that we call a blood-brain barrier. Uh, it keeps any toxins that are in our blood from getting into the brain, which would be a really bad event. So it protects the brain from those toxins, but it also protects the brain from any therapy that a patient would take orally or even intravenously as an infusion. The drugs have to get across the blood-brain barrier. So that creates a problem when you can't deliver it. And there are, actually we know, very effective therapies that can hurt brain tumor cells, but if you can't get it to the tumor, it's a total frustration. So we're working with a team of engineers and uh, bioengineers to study the blood-brain barrier. How do we open it? We may be right at the cusp now of seeing in the next coming year or so of ultrasound-guided opening of the blood-brain barrier, very specific where the tumor is, to get effective drugs into the brain. There's going to be some very exciting work, I believe, coming from that effort. How can uh, donors or potential donors get involved? We would put resources to work today <laughs> if we had more, more resources. Uh, TGen is so fortunate to have an exquisite team of compassionate, disciplined support personnel in the TGen Foundation, and they would love to dialogue with people or I'll connect with folks and talk about our science, but that dedicated team is there to help if folks want to get involved in supporting our research. I know that you are a fan of the phrase, most best days, when you talk about DIPG. What does that mean? So I'm doing DIPG research in part because of a very close encounter with a family that my wife and I got to know whose little child, Hollis, was uh, taken to a hospital here in Phoenix, Phoenix Children's Hospital, with some of these neurological problems that had manifest and got progressively worse. And uh, MRI indicated Hollis had a pontine glioma. My wife was working as a chaplain at the time at Phoenix Children's. She called me from Hollis's hospital room and said, Mike, can you talk to Hollis's parents? Hollis has just been diagnosed with a DIPG. The crisis for parents of underage children is all the treatment plans for their child need to be consented to by the parents. Shane and Shawnee were at wit's end, like they're posing all these treatment options, surgery, radiation, proton beams, traveling to other clinics. And their struggle was, how do we know what to do? We're not the doctors. Spontaneously, I told Shane and Shawnee that you're being asked to make a decision because you're actually the most qualified. Just like you've been making loving, caring, forward-looking decisions on Hollis's behalf for his whole life, those are the same motivations and practices that you want to put to work for Hollis now that you're dealing with a very different scenario, but it's still that loving, caring, forward-looking gesture. So I encourage Shane and Shawnee to use as a metric this most best days that only Shane and Shawnee 
could decide for them as a family what those parameters were. And they found uh, enormous comfort and encouragement around that in dealing with these very difficult personal and yet life-altering decisions. So that's sort of become a a slogan (laughs) around how I look at DIPG. Let's make decisions in real time right now because we're dealing with these while we keep a long-sighted view about breakthroughs and understanding the disease, uh, hopefully prospects in new therapies that we want to be part of. Meanwhile, today, we have to be making some of these hard decisions. And Most Best Days serves as a pretty helpful parameter to, to hold on to. Some incredibly important research into this very difficult field. It's been a good day for us, Dr. Behrens, in terms of uh, learning. Thanks so much for sharing with us today. Absolutely my pleasure, and uh, there's hope. There's real hope that we're pushing on the boundaries here. That's Dr. Michael Behrens, professor and director of TGen's Cancer and Cell Biology Division, leading the TGen charge against DIPG. May 17th is DIPG Awareness Day. Look for social media posts from TGen, and please plan to repost and help raise public awareness of this deadly childhood brain cancer. Please help us spread the word. To hear more TGen Talks, visit tgen.org slash tgentalks. TGen is an affiliate of City of Hope. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Moran.